0: Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts.
1: And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts.
0: Before we start today, I just want to give everyone a heads up that today is actually going to be a longer episode split into two half-hour segments.
1: So today on the show, we're going to talk a bit about identity politics And just to propose the spirit of what we're trying to do, we want to take apart these ideas, some of these foundations, get a fresh, heterodox perspective. And so with that, we want to go forward with open minds and open hearts. And maybe, for some of us, maybe more questions and answers, which is welcomed,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're all about. Hopefully more questions and answers. Uh, Answers aren't always super easy to come by. And if you... Listen, if you do have questions, then certainly shoot us a line. We're here to answer any questions at heterodoxamericana.com. Certainly feel free to uh, you know send us an email or you can find us on Facebook and ask us a question that way. but yeah, more questions than answers. yeah that,
1: that's a that, good thing.
0: That's, that's that's where we are.
1: So here I thought we'd, um, I'm just going to read this definition of identity politics.
0: Good place to start.
1: Um, This is a definition by Jonathan Roche. He's a scholar at the Brookings Institution. He defines identity politics as political mobilization organized around group characteristics, such as race, gender, and sexuality, as opposed to parties, ideology, or pecuniary Interest. So that's his definition. Rafael, why do you think identity politics is important?
0: As it happens, I, I think where we are right now politically, that identity politics is, is a pretty important um, political force. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, you know, I think the country writ large. But the younger you get, I, I think the young, you know, the more important identity politics. Starts to 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 take on uh, how young, so uh, maybe twenties, okay, twenties uh, to mid thirties. Mm-hmm. I think these are the people who are kind of in the grips of what we mean by um, identity politics. Actually, now that I think about it, it, it's probably helpful to 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 talk about why we're even talking about this.
1: Okay,
0: Angie and I were we tend to watch some political shows and debates together. And we happened to be watching the 2018 Monk debate, M-U-N-K, featuring, there was journalist Michelle Goldberg, uh, there was a public intellectual and philosopher, Michael Eric Dyson, another public intellectual and clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson, Mm -hmm. and uh, actor, author, Stephen Fry. The debate was actually about political correctness and is it a good thing, Uh, but it quickly turned into a, a debate about identity politics, at least for most of, of the debaters. Um, and I, I think it's it's hard to really overestimate uh, how important of a, of a force that this is going to be eventually uh, in the United States. So that's why it came up. And, you know, I think it's not top of mind for, uh, for Generation Xers like myself and people who are older. Um, so there's a little bit of... Um, of a generational divide there. But I I think it's going to have a tremendous uh, impact on our political landscape moving forward.
1: Why do you think that?
0: The milieu that kind of gave rise to this, or certainly the the problematic version that we see today, is very much um, liberal college campuses. Uh And so as these college kids get older and you know, some of them really prestigious universities, they're going to end up with a significant amount of influence, probably.
1: They're going to be the decision makers.
0: Right. And so, as a country, we're going to have to grapple with this. One of the things that, you know, I'd like to say really quickly is that, you know, between the definition that you read and the other way that we've been talking about identity politics, that actually two different things are happening. Okay. And so, there's one understanding that is. I don't want to just say it's useful. It's also much older. So there's a much older version of uh, what we might consider identity politics that probably stretch back to the very beginnings of the country. And there's this other form that we were just talking about that's kind of happening. That's
1: the college campus.
0: Primarily on college campuses. But I mean, it certainly has spilled out into uh, into left-leaning circles, even for people who are older than college age.
1: So- can you set this up? Can you give examples of each of these, the older and then the, the more new, the one on college campuses?
0: Yeah. If you just think of identity politics as people with a common identity who have banded together to achieve some political end, then that has, I mean, you in theory, you could argue that um, cessation from Great Britain was that, mm. Um but, you know, we have more recent examples. If you think about civil rights, it's probably one of these classic examples. People who have a real political problem, uh, black people in this country, and started to organize, right? So, you know, the, the identity uh, of blackness or race is certainly at the core of, of how they started to organize. But they also had a particular political agenda that they were trying to achieve uh, in, in terms of, you know, changing the material conditions, and largely what you see is that by the time the civil rights bill happens those political ends are achieved and those types of groups that that you know came into existence in order to achieve this political end they were done they were disbanded because there was no longer the need for that for that group
1: are you talking about like Like what happened with um, like Dr. Martin Luther King, like that, that kind of rallying and then achieving some political end and then being successful.
0: That's exactly what I'm talking about. If if you were to think about people in the civil rights era, and this is for, you know, for most Americans, if you think about some of the names, right? And we do not the greatest job at teaching history, but there are some names that are going to resonate, right? Everyone knows who Martin Luther King is. Everyone knows who Rosa Parks is. Uh, but by the time you get on the opposite on the other side of the civil rights bill, if you were to start trying to name people from let 's say like nineteen seventy okay uh, I think a lot of Americans would draw a blank
1: okay, so this is the old model of identity politics it
0: it 's a let 's call it well, let 's call it classic it 's been around it 's okay. always going to be around i I think it 's uh it's a form uh, of identity politics that has been at the core of the United States I think since it's, the very beginning.
1: Okay, I think it's helpful to call it classic. Then we can, even for um, in reference when we go forward with the show, we can kind of separate these two. Right. Tell me this newer, can you talk to, about this newer form?
0: So the, this newer form of identity politics, and we'll talk a little bit about why it's important, but it's... Um, one of the things that happens is that the group identity becomes paramount at the cost of, uh, of the individual identity. So I don't mean that people stop thinking about themselves or they disappear or anything like that, but whatever becomes assigned to the group. Okay. Let's say we think of, um, let's say we think of um, queer um, queer Mexican Americans as being uh, disenfranchised, mm-hmm. then without looking at the individual circumstances of a given queer, um, you know, Mexican-American, we just assume that they're disenfranchised. Hmm. And even, you know, even when we have people who come from, let's say, well-educated homes or uh, wealthy, well-educated homes, if they happen to be from a particular protected class, protected class being LGBTQ, uh, racial minority, women, disabled, something Mm -hmm. like that, Mm If they happen to be from, you know, let's say a well-educated and wealthy family that has influence, mm-hmm. then instead of seeing that, that person's power, instead of seeing their influence, instead of seeing their privilege, mm-hmm. what we see is that, oh, gays are underprivileged in this way, and mm-hmm. we assign that underprivilege to this individual, irrespective of what their actual means are the blacks are vulnerable in this way and we assign the group vulnerability to that individual irrespective of actually the the material circumstances of that individual so the the group identity Mm -hmm. becomes a cover for whatever that individual has going on and they're seen not as an individual with individual means and individual strengths instead they are seen uh, through the lens of this collective with all of the collective vulnerabilities
1: yeah, but if you were speaking of someone who has, quote, unquote, privilege, you use the word privilege, good education, sound socioeconomic background, they may not be vulnerable in those particular areas. But if you're, as your example, if you're a Mexican queer person, um, they'd still be vulnerable for the sheer fact that they even need to be a protected class.
0: I mean, so, sure, like they're a protected class for a reason. And I'm not saying that all vulnerabilities go away just because you have means, but a lot do. Like being able to buy your way into a much nicer neighborhood makes things like a lot easier. People who like, so here's an example for like women who have money um, versus women who don't have like any money whatsoever. So we know because of Harvey Weinstein, uh, as a German speaker, I'm always just going to pronounce it that way. So Harvey Weinstein. Uh, for example, gives you a really good example of how vulnerable women can be, uh, even if they have money, right. Right? which is why they're a protected class. Right. What I'm saying is that the material conditions of someone who has that amount of money and their vulnerabilities compared to a woman who has to walk down the street uh, at nighttime, whether it's construction workers or whether it's you know dark alleys, that those material conditions are different. If you have a car where you can lock the doors and lock the windows, mm-hmm. then you don't have to pass by, you know, 50 potential threats. Sure. It doesn't mean all the threats in the world go away. It right. just means the, the material conditions are different for you. And if we consider, you know, if we were to think of, let's say, a, you know, a poor woman who's coming home from work at nighttime, it's one o'clock in the morning, and say, this is the condition, this is the vulnerability of women, and then we apply that same version of vulnerability to all women writ large... And we've missed, you know, essentially um, like Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton doesn't have those vulnerabilities in the same way, though. She has some maybe, but they're not the same as um, as Consuela, who's coming home at nighttime. They're just different.
1: But how do we have to then um, take away this label of identity politics to create something that people aren't identifying with if they're different?
0: no i mean the idea is to treat people as individuals and understand that every individual has their individual vulnerabilities they have their individual strengths we're not going to say that all women face the same material conditions because they don't okay let me back up a second because this is not quite coming out There, there is something that we need to look at as a class so you were talking about the reason that we have protected classes to begin with mm-hmm. there are things that are common enough in the experiences of black people they're common enough in the experiences writ large. Of women that are common enough in the experiences of uh, LGBTQ people mm-hmm. that they end up doing the type of political banning that we talked about in terms of classic identity politics. And That's why right. these types of things happen. So there are some real kind of you know material conditions that are common enough. I see that people end up right. having like you know political cohesion so that they can they change can a particular kind right. of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just saying that. The, the individual can't disappear in that in in that process. I don't want to see Jaden Smith as the same as Trayvon because their material conditions are I different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. It it almost there's even a, uh, an issue of somewhat of dignity, you know, to to take everybody and and just paint them with one broad
0: stroke. Which is mm-hmm. you know what I think um, these kind of identity politics, you know, mm-hmm. adherence. Uh, that's what that's what happens. Everyone gets painted with with a broad stroke. Yeah. And, that, you know, that comes at a cost. One of, I think, probably the biggest cost has to do with their ability to be resilient. Um, I think when we are, so let's say this, too, because we were also talking about kind of protection and harms. Um, when it comes to physical harms, when it comes to real injustices, I mean, that's the reason that the political things that have happened, you know, that's the reason that we have protected classes. Mm-hmm. What happens with so much of the identity politics, it's they're not they're not real tangible harms in the same way. It's that people want to feel safe from ideas. They wanna be protected from like let's say words. Um if we're reading a book, uh Mark Twain's book is a is a really good example, the Huckleberry Finn. Yes. Uh Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer, yep. And Huckleberry Finn. Yep, good buds. Um is the classic, you know, example that's come up uh, because the N word gets used uh, throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And in, instead of being able to kind of locate this this uh, piece of literature, both in time and in the, the, the kind of political milieu that we find it, instead you have people say, I don't want to encounter this word. Right. This word is going to upset me because it, it has all these meanings and I need a trigger warning. I'm going to be triggered, things of this sort. Yeah. And so the type of protection that they're looking for is not a protection you know, that has to do with like physical harm. It's a protection of ideas. It's a protection of feeling. I want to be protected from feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably one of the bigger differences.
1: But the thing is, you know, I think where it's hard for me to... Let go of that. There are some people that have been harmed emotionally, psychically over years, with words, with right. emotional abuse, um, right. as you know, large groups of people. And
0: we have a you know we have a way to resolve that, right? It's called therapy. Oh, if your feelings get hurt,
1: <laughs> I'm a therapist.
0: Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> if your feelings get hurt and uh, you are you feel bad about what someone said to you. Uh, that's, what what that, about the poor
1: that, people that don't that, have the that's, money for that. That's
0: it? too bad, yeah. right? Um, wow. it, it is. Are you, are you saying that it's not bad? No, no but, it is bad. That okay. part is too bad. Yeah, As a I go, see. As, as not... a government response mm-hmm. or as a policy response, I don't think it's the, you know, it, it's, not the, it's not the job of, of any institution or any government to protect your feelings from you feeling bad. It's the opposite of sticks and stones. But I
1: hear that, and I agree with you that it's not the government's job to protect your feelings. But what I'm talking about is some of this is generational psychic pain, right? Yes, and and, and that's to... what
0: therapy is for.
1: Rafael, really? You're just going to send everybody what, to what therapy? Would be the, what, be they, the, what about what, the people that can't afford a therapist? What if there's no therapist in your neighborhood or even close to you? What about the person that lives out you know in rural pennsylvania without any therapist at all i mean really we can't say that the solution i mean i i'm for i'm for it i'm a therapist come to me but i mean honestly we can't just say hey your feelings are you know you've had this generations of psychic pain and really that's that's your that's on you so go get so i therapist. think what
0: you're talking about is really at the core of the argument that the identity politics adherence Uh, that's really what they're on about. If there is some intergenerational uh, pain that, you know, I'm in, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. Epigenetics. Um, Epigenetics. I grew up in Mississippi and, you know, I've been harassed my entire life uh, for being Black. And so did my mother and so did my
1: grandfather.
0: Right? Intergenerational. Right. The proposal for how to deal, so first of all, that's not, Everybody, okay, right, and we still have to see that person as an individual, uh, but we can't then have administrators, and we certainly can't have government say that because, um, because you know Roscoe from Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, has had so much intergenerational pain. We then need to make a policy to protect all Black people from the same type of pain that Roscoe's going through. Like that, that's not. Mm. So when I want to say that's not the job of administrators, but in fact administrators have fallen into that trap. That's exactly what's happening on campuses. Uh, but that that's the very root of how this other type of identity politics. That's how it's working. So let me go back to resilience. Um, when we think about what it takes to to really build up, uh, let's you know I feel bad using the word grit these days because everyone is panned it, but. When um, when you think about what it takes to build resilience, to build grit, to build character, to build some toughness, because the mm-hmm. world is, the, the world is not going to treat you with kid gloves, right? So your universities might treat you with kid gloves, uh, and your parents might, but the world won't, uh, at least not right now. And in order to be able to to make it, in mm-hmm. order to be able to handle it, in order to not be depressed and have all this anxiety, in order to be able to thrive. Uh, which is you know one of the things that I'm certainly on about in order to be able to thrive, you need to build the chops, the resilience, especially if you're from a protected class. So stop
1: hiding from the things that are hurting you or make you feel bad let's let's go with the feeling. Stop hiding from the things that are making you feel bad and try to figure out what to do with it instead right. or take it in and and
0: I mean so what you know the other thing is what are the implications? Okay right if we hide or if we are unable to face all of those bad feelings, we can get administrators to protect us in one way, but what happens during that breakup? Well, what? I
1: know because I'm a therapist, so I know what happens during those breakups for people that haven't built resiliency
0: exactly whether it's breakups, it's ended friendships, it's you get fired or whatever it is like all those hard cancer, feelings yep. they're gonna come yeah, and you won't have the resilience to to deal with it so um. You know, I, I think that there is a potential, so that's one of the potential harms mm-hmm. that comes out of this type of uh, protectionist um, identity politics. There, there's another thing that happens to be on the other side if you're not from a protected class. So, you know, the archetype of the person who's on the other side would be a man okay. who's white,
1: mm-hmm.
0: cisgender, and heterosexual. Got right? it.
1: het
0: white man. Cis het white man.
1: Cis head white man. Right.
0: Got it. So if you're cis, you know, cisgender, heterosexual, white, and male, you are the exact, I mean, you are at the paragon of privilege and power, at least seen through this particular lens of identity politics.
1: Right. Identity politics would say you are right. set. Yeah.
0: And even for this person, their individualism is erased, their individual identity is erased as well. They get to be... Only just a a, kind of manifestation of that. So, if you have a really good idea, say it occurs to you. Say you're real thoughtful. You're real like progressive. I'm a cis hetero white guy, Mm -hmm. and I decide to go into women's studies. And it occurs to me that you know what I see something that my professor hasn't mentioned. I go through the literature. Oh, there there seems like there's a, a problem that hasn't been addressed.
1: So you raise your hand.
0: So you raise your hand and say, hey has you know has anybody ever addressed Other this, this issue as a hit as a cis hetero white guy you were going to be panned universally because look the thinking is that you're
1: going to be panned universally because
0: the thinking is <laughs> cis hetero white guys have occupied the privileged uh position of power for so long and contributed to the suppression of voices of others that you no longer get a say.
1: This is the thinking. This, this would be the thinking and identity. This politics. is
0: the identity politics thinking. Okay, on the other side, mm-hmm. um, and it erases that individual's ability to contribute, to understand. To so he might have had
1: something amazing to say, but
0: he could have had right. The next exactly, like I have a breakthrough idea that's amazing, hmm. but because I'm a cis hetero white guy, I'm not. The identity to politics it. people are not going to listen. Right. And again, I think that kind of destroys the individual and we miss something.
1: Do you have a personal story that you could share about protectionist identity politics? Personally?
0: So as a as a cis hetero black man, I actually have encountered uh, some of this my, myself. So I was at a speaker event uh, with uh, a few friends and the, the author, the speaker, said some things that I later came to see as inappropriate there was um and and the, the young woman um uh, that i was with actually she identifies she self identifies as a female bodied person okay um so this female bodied person um had taken offense to what was said and um uh, she inquired as to so we were also there with another man as to why he didn't speak up uh having having in some ways he had the opportunity
1: was what the speaker said was it um inappropriate towards women
0: yeah so it it was was the sexist and a statement that was inappropriate towards women uh i don't think that the that the other guy that we were with i don't think it was on his radar and it it certainly wasn't on mine uh when she pointed it out to us though i could i mean the logic was clear as a bell. like i I was able to see which what she was on about um and you know she suggested that this other man had missed the opportunity to actually be a good ally and um, and actually, you know, kind of confront or address what the speaker had said. Uh, but because he missed it and because I missed it, I was just curious as to well, why, didn't, why didn't you say anything? That's I mean, what you said to her? That's what I said to her.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, you know, her, her reasoning was that as a female-bodied person who has to you know, go through the world uh, every day encountering men and all the things that men do, uh, she felt like it wasn't her job, it wasn't her labor to have to educate men. Okay. That that was the purview of other men. It's their job to do that. Um, And we didn't quite see eye to eye on that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I was coming from a position of if you see an injustice and we are like our brother's keepers. um, And sister's keepers. And sister's keepers. That If we're in community together and we're doing this together, um, if I see something, I'm I'm gonna address the problem. Right? I see. Um, but again, she she had this 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 take that that wasn't her her labor, and she's tired of having to educate men. Uh, so you know, as we take this idea about whose job it is and whose job it isn't, um, at some point I said. It actually is your job. Right? This is part of your job. You don't have, You don't want it to be your job.
1: So you dis- You were telling her your thoughts. You're disagreeing with her and saying. I,
0: that, I, I disagreed wholeheartedly okay. to the degree that it's anybody's job, because you could also make the argument that it's nobody's job. Right. But to the degree that it's anybody's job, you don't have to want it, right? Mm-hmm. That's why it's labor. That's why it's a job. You don't have to want to mm-hmm. do this. Um, but it falls upon you anyway. Okay. Uh no no one want, you know you know um. um so no one wants it. Right. However, um, her retort, her rebuttal was that as a male-bodied person, I don't get to tell her that that that's her job, that that's her labor, uh. Uh, that it actually wasn't up to me because I was male-bodied, right? And so men. So the part that felt like the part for me that was untenable was that I had some ideas. Uh, Some ideas about uh, community, some ideas about what it means to address injustice, about what it means uh, in terms of responsibility and also diffusion of responsibility. Mm -hmm. But irrespective of the type of argument that I was making, the fact that I was a man discounted my entire argument. As if there was no merit to what I was saying. Because I was a man.
1: So she kind of erased you as an individual, put you in a big collective box and said, you're not allowed to speak.
0: Which is what happens with the identity politics. Yes. I, as an individual, I disappear and I become all men. I'm just like the Borg of men.
1: Yeah. It's one big talking head. I was thinking uh, of an example that um, I, I was considering, you know, somebody who had Perhaps lived, uh, worked as a midwife. You know, for forty years, delivered hundreds and hundreds of babies, but maybe never was able to give birth herself. Right. That would kind of discount then her entire career. I mean, she's educated; she went to University of Pennsylvania. But if she's never had a baby, then somehow she's not allowed to speak to this these women. Right. That she have, can't. She, she can't speak to the experiences
0: of mothers because she's not a mother.
1: And this just goes on and on about examples. I mean, what what, what about professors and educators and teachers and doctors and yeah, it just... I i don't know where it would end if we were to consider that with that such a broad Which is strip. why I think
0: we have to consider that individuals also have... Indiv- yeah, that's mm-hmm. why individuals matter. Mm-hmm.
1: So are there times when protectionist identity politics are useful?
0: Useful. So... Uh. I mean everything in me wants to say no. I mean I I think it's pretty clear where I land it on it. It really
1: this. is very clear.
0: Uh if I'm going to be completely honest though, if I'm going to look at it through a nuanced lens, yeah. which is what we've committed to That's doing. That's exactly right. So if if I try to consider the nuance, there are at least two ways that I think it it might be it might be potentially helpful. Um the first one has to do with I think the lens through which people who are adherence to this the lens through which they see the world. And just because um just because i you know I, I grew up tougher right like i i grew up tough right um i grew up fighting right so i i, I grew up um i mean i had probably 20 fist fights by the time second grade was over
1: whoa
0: um and and the sticks and stones thing i mean that was real right housing mm. projects uh people say all types of stuff about your mom mm. lots of mom jokes in the projects trust me nobody out there wants to battle me on mom jokes
1: <laughs> okay we established that then um don't send that in an email
0: but, but right i'm mean, these challenges your mom is so um but uh but it's not my reality of having been protected all the time. Mm-hmm. And so if I come into the world and I end up on a college campus, and it just so happens that I've already been protected this much, uh, my ability to weather the storm while taking really hard classes might be, yeah, you know, it might not be the same as if I'd never been protected. Um, and I think through their lens, I think what they are seeing is that this, this actually makes it one safer for me, they call them safe spaces. Uh, it, it makes it safer mentally and emotionally for me. Still, so I can get through some of the work that I'm doing. And in the short run, it might actually be beneficial. What I'm arguing is that there's still a long-term price that they're going to pay. Okay, but in the short term, I think it, it it might actually be be helpful.
1: It will be helpful. Why? I mean,
0: college is hard, hmm. right? and so if you have to, you know, turn in a paper. And get through classes, and you know Mr. Snyder doesn't like you anyway because you didn't do well in, you know, biochemistry or whatever it is. And, and you feel triggered at the same time because it's something that happened in English class. Uh, does mental health play a role in a college student's ability to kind of get through the coursework? Yeah, I think it does. Mm-hmm. And so in this regard, um, in the short term, it's potentially helpful. Okay. Um, Again, I just think it comes at a cost. Yeah.
1: So what's the other way?
0: The other way that I think is it, that, that this particular type of identity politics is helpful is if you actually have a collective group that, is, um, that needs to be protected from the ideas of the outside world. Um, so the Amish come to mind. Okay. Uh, when I think about, you know, the, the kind of projects of the Amish, they really do want to protect their communities, not just from physical harm, but also kind of ideological harms mm-hmm. as well, or ideological threats. Um, be
1: in the world, but not of the world.
0: The Amish very much want to be in the land of the United States, mm-hmm. in that world, but not of the world. Right. And in fact, when we look at, uh, there's a Supreme Court case, I think it's Wisconsin versus Yoder, uh, where the state of Wisconsin was trying to sue the Amish to get the, the Amish were taking their kids out. And they said, these kids got to go to school. Mm-hmm. And the Amish were like, I almost did an Amish accent. I don't realize. No, I don't even know I mean, what they sound like. Yeah, so I think we're, well we're, we're off the hook. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you could do but, that. but the Amish were saying, no, we don't want our kids to go to school. And the, the Amish understood that there is a particular threat to community that individualism poses. Mm-hmm. And so in a very real way, they wanted their kids to be um, not useful in the larger society. Mm-hmm. They wanted them to be undereducated or uneducated. So that they could raise barns and build buggies, but not do tech work or, you know, a different kind of construction work, Mm -hmm. not use tools. Uh, That's what they wanted. And so they wanted to keep their kids out of school. Um, Eventually, the Supreme Court uh, had a decision that was kind of a compromise. It said that at eighth grade, the Amish can take their kids out of school. So they're educated enough to read, write, and uh, ostensibly sign contracts. Okay. But they're not so well-educated that they can get tech jobs. And even those Amish who leave, right, they have a really hard time uh, finding work because they don't have the skills. But they're protected inside the community, um, and they get to keep their tradition.
1: So identity politics really works for the Amish. I,
0: I think the Amish is a strong case for why that particular type of identity politics helps, but they have this collective identity anyway.
1: Okay. So there are real struggles, struggles for the protected class. They're there. Well, how, do we, how do we address it?
0: Well, you know, I, I think some of what has already been happening in classic uh, identity politics is, is, is a, a really good approach. But ultimately, I think we need to treat people as individuals. Um, I mean, I, I think when we, when we look at the project of the West and how Western individualism plays out, it's one of these things that's very easy to take for granted. Um, and I could see why people might, I don't mean, I don't think they intentionally set out to undermine it, but eventually what, you know, ultimately what happens is I, I think that type of individualism itself starts to give way. Um, and again, you know, I, 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 think it's easy to take it for granted because, uh, because we're all around it because we are swimming in the water of Western individualism, so to speak, and we're not quite aware of what it has afforded us um but there's some things that we can do that let's say even a collective group like the amish like they can't do so we know they can raise barns Mm. we know they can build buggies Mm -hmm. but they don't get to pursue their own interests they don't get to like pursue music they don't get to you know be computer scientists and do make vaccines or mris that that is what you get when individual um ideas and individual thoughts and their their dreams when they matter
1: so how do we address then? How do we how do we get to the struggle? How do we fix it or p- protect it maybe?
0: So one resilience counts. Mm-hmm. I think res- you know, so building in the skills, right? Listen, if there are real physical dangers, physical harms, then we have a way to address those legally. Can we address the psychic harm? Y- yes, we address those at home as parents and say People are gonna say these things. You're gonna say sticks and stones. It might still hurt your feelings, but you're gonna be okay, and you will be okay. There's a um, there's an ultra marathoner. David Goggins is his name. Uh. Uh, he might be the toughest man on the face of the planet. Yeah. Grew up every day. Uh, you know, after a certain age, he's in Indiana. People called him nigger every day. Hated himself. Um, he you know he lived a miserable life. He was overweight um and eventually david goggins looked at himself in the mirror and he wanted to make a change and he started over time it took him decades uh but what happened is that now he's one of the most resilient one of the toughest one of the like freest minds i think at least that i've ever heard speak i mean david goggins is free in his head that dude is free Hmm. um and i think everybody should be free uh, but he didn't get it. Um, he, he was able to achieve that despite being called nigger every day, mm-hmm. despite being called fat every day, despite being called a wimp every day. Uh, these things didn't destroy him. They gave him the fuel to become somebody new. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think, you know, as parents, we, we don't protect our kids from, from everything that hurts their feelings. We what? teach them how to, you know. Anyway, go ahead.
1: No, I, I, I just, I hear that. I think you know there are, I, I don't, I don't know what the, um, the formula is. I, I do believe that we have the capacity, all of us, because of neuroplasticity, to do something with our brains that can change us for the better, and we all have that opportunity. Right. I, I do also believe in this kind of psychic oppression that has been um, with groups of people for generations. Um, you know, lifting people out to the place of which then they start to be able to consider that there's something else. That's tricky, um, and I don't I don't really have the answer for that. I guess maybe David Goggins would.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think David Goggins is a really good example. We we have this other thing that you know is kind of playing in the background, and that's that's all of all the data that points to the more protectionism that we do, uh, the less uh, mentally well these kids are so yeah, and we I see depression going up we see anxiety yes. going up we see suicide rates going up the more protective we are of their feelings the less resilient and the harder time they have navigating the world
1: yeah i agree i just i think it's it's tricky to understand where the line is you know because certainly as a parent i'm definitely going to protect my kid I'm, you know, if 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 I send my kid out to the yard and the dog bites her hand and she comes in and tells me the dog bit her hand, I'm not going to go send her out to the yard again. I'm going to make sure that that dog doesn't bite her. Um, and I know that's a real physical right. injury. And so but there... I'm trying to use it as a, an example. Well,
0: no, well, see, but that's the distinction. Uh, one, I would say, don't. Don't prevent her from going to the yard again. Just make sure the dog isn't there. Mm-hmm. Because if we allow the fear to control her behavior, then of course. Uh, then we're somewhere else. But yes, the physical dog is different. Right? I, that, that, I agree. I guess that's your point. That's exactly my point.
1: Well, we are ending. Um, we're, we're getting to the end of the show. There's so much more to say. And thankfully, this is a two-part um, series. So I think we should probably sign off here. I don't know that there's a good spot to sign off, but knowing that we're going to start again soon.
0: That's right. Well, we'll say thank you for listening, um, and we will see you on the next episode.
1: See ya.